for May 13th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 254. Gatsby, you don't have to put on the green light. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I am Matthew Rather, your host for the Great Gatsby podcast, the Great Gatscast. Cat- <laughs> Gatscast 2013! <laughs> uh, we will get to that later on uh, in the show, but first, uh, it is Eurovision time. It's finally upon us. We've been talking and talking and talking about it. We've just been flogging the hell out of it because we've been doing this video series, and you can find all the videos uh, in YouTube, and, and uh, we're, we're very lucky... Um, to have well i i'll i'll save it i'll save it for a little while on but uh <laughs> we're 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 going to be posting more videos and with God as my witness, we will review in video form all 39 entries in Eurovision. Uh, Although in some cases, we may review them mere minutes before they are eliminated in the semifinals. <laughs> right. Yeah. A, a big Google Hangout right at the end. It's like, eh, what do yeah. you think of San Marino? Right. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, so uh, that is Matthew Blinky. He's been taking a break from uh, from editing. That's what I was going to say before. He's <laughs> in the middle of, of editing uh, more entries to post. I just shot four countries uh, today. We are in high production mode. But uh, it's podcast time. So in honor of The Great Gatsby, what, uh, what high school classic, what book commonly... Uh, assigned to high school reading lists, would you like to see a particular director do a big budget adaptation of? Uh, Blinks, I think you're first in the alphabet, so I'm going to drink while you tell us. Uh, all right, guys, I'm going to go with, and you're going to you're gonna have to stick with me here for a little while, I'm going to go with uh, Eden, Edith Wharton's uh, harrowing novella, Ethan Frome. Um <laughs> So Ethan Frome, for those of you who don't know, it's a very short book. It's less than 200 pages. But if they, if they can make The Hobbit into, like, you know, a 12-hour-long three-part movie, they can certainly make Ethan Frome into, like, a single motion picture. Um, so it is about uh, a man who lives in the Northeast, and he's in sort of an unhappy marriage. And he's, he lusts after his wife's cousin, who is staying with them to help after the sickly wife. But he knows that they can never be together. And at the, I'm going to give away spoilers for Ethan Frome here. Um, that's words I never thought I'd say. Okay. Um, but towards the end of the story, when they realize that they could never uh, be happy together, uh, th- that uh, Ethan and his wife's cousin, who sort of have this, this mutual attraction but know they can never act on it, decide to commit suicide in, in my favorite uh, literary suicide uh, ever, which is um, th- they're, they're going to sled themselves to death. Literally, they're going to get on a sled and point it at a tree and, and get in a, a, a fatal sled accident. Um, and and I, I don't want to spoil all the twists of either probe, but let's just say that it doesn't work in the way that they planned um, and that their lives become yet more miserable and, and prolonged. Um, <laughs> so you might wonder, it's like, why do I think this would be a good big summer blockbuster? Is because I think sledding is something that has never been shot in 3D and, and should be. Um, so that what I'm imagining Ethan Frome as is basically the Fast and the Furious, but instead of cars, they're sleds. And so in my version, Ethan Frome is not, you know, I, I don't know what, um, 
you know what 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 sort of uh, New Englandy occupation uh, the gentleman has uh, in Ethan Frome. I mean, my version he's going to be a professional sled racer. He's going to make his living in sort of turn of the century New England, going from town to town and challenges their greatest sledders to races down the most treacherous courses. And there's going to be any number of scenes where, like in slow motion, sort of computer generate. I'm I'm seeing this as very speed racery. Um, you know, like like sleds barreling around these these uh, hairpin turns, people sort of flipping to their desks and 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 coming right at the camera in sort of uh, um, matrix matrixy bullet time uh, slow mo. Um, and then yeah, and then and then finally uh, at the end he tries to tries to kill himself in a dramatic uh, sled crash. Um, and it's gonna. I mean, there's gonna be like all manner of like DVD extras about the the crack sled team that they had to like take up to the Matterhorn to like capture. Like you've never seen sledding this close and personal as you as you will have. It's going to be like it's, it's going to be like piece. there's going to be like a, a scene of like experts sitting around a table. It's like how do we do it? We sled. We get the the world's best sledders. It'll be like the scene in Armageddon where. Uh, Wait, are you talking about the behind the scenes making the movie? Are you saying that there should be some sort of Ocean's Eleven type? Like Ethan Frome is in fact a master bank robber who somehow uses sleds <laughs> in order. So it's like a turn of the century bank robbery slash sort of uh, illegal sled racing. Um, with like this torn love affair. By the way, just I, I feel like I should throw out that there is actually a decent film adaptation of this, starring Liam Neeson as Ethan Frome and Joan Allen as the wife he doesn't like, and Patricia Arquette as the young. This is from the early '90s, by the way, as the the wife's cousin that that he lusts after, and it's directed by uh, John Madden, who not only is a great uh, football commentator and video game uh, impresario, but uh, directs a mighty fine movie every once in a while. I believe he. <laughs> You no, know, in, in real life, the guy John Madden directed uh, Shakespeare in Love. Uh, recent Exotic Marigold Hotel was his. And uh, back in the early 90s, he did Ethan Frome. But there was no slow motion. Uh, there was no uh, 3D slow motion in it. And therefore, it must be redone. Excellent. Uh, Peter Fenzel, you're next in the alphabet. Hey, uh, hey. thanks. I'm going to go with William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. <laughs> and I want to see it directed by McGee. <laughs> Uh, McGee, the famous director of uh, of Charlie's Angels, of The O.C., uh, and of Nikita and Chuck and Human Target and such, or the executive producer of Human Target. Because I feel like The Sound and the Fury as a novel, this sort of surface experience, especially if you attempt to read it in high school, is one of like deep confusion and disorientation, yeah. right? <laughs> this is a novel that's taught in like deep perspective by a mentally handicapped person, by an impressionistic, uh, unreliable narrator, you know, by people with deep prejudices. There's lots of chases where it's kind of not entirely clear what people are going after or why. Uh, I feel like this would be very natural for Mick G, and we would really get to that sense of uh, of like frantic need. It's it's like there's this sense in a lot of I feel like in a lot of Mick G's work that the characters have a frantic need to do things, and nobody told them why or what, but they really still feel like they need to do this thing. And I, and I feel like that would really, really echo the high school experience of reading The Sound and the Fury. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Well, the, the, the experience of being a teenager is you feel this frantic need to do something. But, like, uh, especially earlier in your teenage years, you're not always totally sure what it is, you know? You, yeah, yeah, exactly. You find out later. But uh, you have this just burn. 
burning need to all the time be thinking about this one thing yeah. and you don't know what it is and there's uh, robots and <laughs> and there'd be a great there's a, in the sound of the fury there's a lot of like moments of looking uh right where people notice these images that are all possessing and of course this is true of most novels right but like i could totally see like swooping bullet time uh camera angles being played up in, in the kind of uh uh the sort of stream of consciousness narration that would be necessary yeah. to make now, let me let me ask you a question because McGee, t- to me, one of his hallmarks is the use of a lot of pop songs. Um, oh, oftentimes, yeah. it's sort of like uh, oftentimes it's like sort of punchlines. Ironically, yeah. yeah. I remember at the end of like Charlie's Angels, there's something like sixty pop songs that are listed in the credits. So I'm wondering, it's like, would he? Would it be a period piece? Would it be updated to the present day? Would it be a period piece? But you're still using like "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go." Uh, I feel like there would be an album that would be called. Music inspired by the sound and the fury, and it would be entirely by Kid Rock, uh, and it would be about the Southern experience, and it would it would be a bunch of Kid <laughs> Rock, Kid Rock uh, dubstep influenced covers of classic country music songs, and several Kid Rock originals that would pepper the soundtrack, uh, and it would be Kid Rock's triumphant return to form after his uh, uh, his uh, relative I, was he ever away from form? I'm not entirely sure, but there would be form of Kid Rock involved. No, yeah, well, maybe first, like, you know. Fa- Fogner, of course, like, you know, a great uh, chronicler of the American South. So it makes sense yeah. that, the, that the soundtrack would be like very uh, basically yeah. uh, like uh, Three Six Mafia. Yeah. And a well known, ill behaved uh, celebrity alcoholic, right? So yes, <laughs> it's true. It's, it's uh, Three Six Mafia who might win another Oscar for their, their uh, original song. It's hard out here for an unreliable narrator. You know what I hope happens is I hope they, they they sort of set that up exactly like you say, but in the end they just keep the title, and it becomes it becomes something totally different. It becomes about like hang gliders that are like stranded in a blizzard and have to like hang glide off of uh, Everest. <laughs> so like so it's like what literary characters would you like to see act out the plot of Point Break, right? It's like, <laughs> It's like, I want it to be Huckleberry Finn. (laughs) When you get down to it, like, The Sound and the Fury is too good a title not to make a movie out of, regardless of, like, how poor the subject material will lend itself to being a movie. Like, at some point, like, there's, like, a giant computer in, like, some, like, Warner Brothers basement that will, like, force them to buy the rights to Sound and the Fury based solely on, like, opening weekend will be huge. All we got to do is make a poster that says The Sound and the Fury and has, like, uh, I don't know... that 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 guy. I can't even think of his name. The guy from Avatar. That's how much I've forgotten about. Well, actually, I think Fox would know because 20th Century Fox made a version of The Sound of the Fury that stars Yul Brenner. <laughs> that, oh, wow. that all of a sudden I really want to see. Uh, Yul Brenner with hair, with like a comb over. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Loosely based on the William Faulkner novel, says the I believe, I believe that's why he lost his hair. Oh, is it the Sound <laughs> of the Fury? Yes. <laughs> by 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 the time he was done shooting, he was completely bald. Never grew back. <laughs> Uh, so let it be written, so let it be done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I went to a different sort of high school than than most people because it was very artsy, and it, it's here in California, and there are sort of particular cultural imperatives to high school uh, education here in California. And so we had a lot of, like, um, did you guys read in, in high school The House on Mango Street? No. No, so there, there's a lot of like Chicano literature that's kind of more uh, part of a, a middle school and high school education in California than it may be in, in like the Northeast. Um, just cause because that's, of the very large uh, Chicano population. Well, right, right yeah. exactly. <laughs> just because that's the culture. 
uh, yeah. of the of the place here. So, um, see, what yeah, the- you didn't read Ethan Frome, did you? I grew up in Connecticut, so it's all making sense all of a sudden. <laughs> I didn't. Did read, I didn't did read Night. No. See, there you go. That's what we did in the Northeast. <laughs> oh, the, uh, the did, did I? I? I don't think I was assigned that, although it, it would make sense. Or would, uh... any of the other great young adult Holocaust novels? <laughs> um... There are many. Uh, but anyway, continue. Well, right. The no, we we did get like a separate piece though, so I feel like I got you know our New Englandy boarding school uh, thing. But I, I sort of don't understand a separate piece. I have to say, um, le- like, is it a, a gay thing? Is it a? I don't know what. Um, I don't know what exactly is going on in that. It's a hang gliding competition. <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, um, I, I want to uh, adapt the classic of Chicano literature, uh, Bless Me Ultima, by Rudolfo Anaya, uh, which I read in the eighth grade. Um, Is that about Ultima Online? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's about Ultima. It's about, like, migrant laborers. It's about uh, the, the, the plot of Bless Me Ultima, it's a coming-of-age story. Um, it's uh it's set in New Mexico I think and and uh it's about young Antonio who kind of comes of age under the watchful eye and tutelage uh of Ultima um who is a a sort of community elder and who may be a a curandera or like uh sort of medicine woman it's like you know it's like she's a witch and like not every you know everyone is a little wary of her uh you know in the the sort of straight-laced community anyway i i would like this i i this was you know i don't know indicative of like my um like a certain kind of political correctness maybe in my uh high school experience and like the the sort of the sort of thing that we read a lot of when I was growing up and so I would like to see it totally you know destroyed as we want most things from high school probably destroyed right like by a big big budget adaptation and the person um I want to direct it uh because it's you know there is a great deal of kind of like quasi magical and I I should say that there is a um there is a, a film adaptation of it, a recent film adaptation uh, of it, but but not really the kind of special effects extravaganza that I'm envisioning. Um, th- there are like elements of good versus evil, of sort of quasi witchcraft, of of you know spirituality, and like a great interior struggle inside for like uh, assimilation and Chicano culture versus American culture and. You know, um, they anglicize his name as as Anthony when he goes to school and, you know, all all this sort of uh, really tumultuous internal conflict inside this boy growing up and trying to sort of figure out his own identity. Um, and I thought, uh, well, uh, who directed Constantine? And uh, it turns out Constantine was directed by Francis Lawrence. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the guy who directs the Hulk movie, right? Who, who is also... Um, did he direct the Hulk movie? The, the, the more recent uh, Hulk movie with uh, Ed Norton, I believe. Oh, oh yeah. I Am Legend, I believe, is one of his. No, right? I Am Legend, I, I know. And also, uh, upcoming Hunger Games movie, uh, so Catching Fire. And I guess uh, IMDb tells me he's been announced as the, the director of Mockingjay, uh, parts one and two. So um, this guy has, ha, definitely has his, uh, his 
bona fides, his action bona fides. So I, uh, you know, and also his like angsty adolescent bona fides in, uh, in the Hunger Games series. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I look forward to this. Uh, I think that like, um, you know, I don't know, there may be like some like dream sequences or inside the mind shots that are kind of reminiscent of the, the battles between, uh, between good and evil in a film like Constantine or the, you know, action of I am, I am legend. So, uh, so this summer ask Ultima to bless you. She's not gonna (laughs) boom and stuff. Uh, anyway, so, um, so high school literature, we will get back to Great Gatsby in just a minute. Uh, but first Eurovision, uh, Matt, before you get back to, um, to editing some videos and posting them frantically online. Uh, you and I conducted uh, earlier this weekend some some interviews with a couple of people uh, who were involved uh, in Eurovision. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, first of all, just talking to anybody who was involved in Eurovision, no matter how tangentially, uh, it was a thrill for me. Uh, so that the, uh, the, the first one, uh, Mr. Martin King, who um, he was the the uh, lyricist of the Belarusian uh, Belarusian. How do you pronounce that? I feel like we should get to the bottom of it. I say Belarusian. Is that? Do you have any reason to believe that's the right way to pronounce it? I always it? say Belarusian. <laughs> I always put a little ya in there because uh, I always thought it was Belarus instead of Belarus. Like I don't think it's a. Um, oh gosh, what's the name of that of that uh, that e? Like the e, the vowel e in Slavic languages tends to more commonly be uh, start with a, a y glide, right? They they have both a, a e that starts with a y glide and an e that's just sort of like eh, and the e that's eh is almost is overwhelmingly in foreign words. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah. tend to say Belarusian. In 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 Russia, Y glide starts with you. Although they can, I love Belarus. They say Belarus, so I don't know. Yeah, they they do, but of course they don't speak English that well. So <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. may. Uh, so if if you recall, Pete, when you reviewed this, you said that it was it was uh, Belarus. obvious and laughable propaganda because the the lyrics uh, refer to to Belarus as a place where the sun is always shining. <laughs> well, yeah. when, and it's warm. It seems to imply that it's warm as well. It's it's a it's a it's a Latin number. Yeah, um, yeah. But in fact, you know, he he clarified that the song is not about Belarus at all. The song is is called Saleo, and it is about a, a fictional place called Saleo, which he actually, uh, without any prompting from us, equated to uh, to Plato and Aristotle and their sort of early philosophy on like utopia, uh, you know, and, and the uh, the Atlantis uh, story that that. Uh, uh, is it Plato? Plato writes about the uh, the Atlantis thing. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So he was he definitely rose to the overthinking challenge, <laughs> and, uh, and and uh, and Martin King also interestingly a military historian. So we we have actually an interview uh, that we conducted earlier this weekend with him, and we're we're going to play it uh, in a second. And then and then um, uh, also we talked with uh, another uh, another Martin. Or another really, king, another, another king. king. Yeah, two mats, two mats. Yeah, there were two mats talking to two kings. 
Yeah. Uh, this is Dave King, who oh, right. uh, is a, a longtime studio musician uh, living, living overseas, living in Germany, um, who played, uh, I believe it was 1979, um, on the, the winning Eurovision song, although was unfortunately did not get to go and play at the show itself, because understandably, uh, they have a single band that plays for everybody in the Eurovision show, unless you're, you are a band who are actually playing instruments live on stage. But he played in the sort of German competition that resulted in the song being picked. Um, and it was not only any song, it was the, the song uh, Genghis Khan, which was a, a disco ode to the Mongolian warlord of the, uh, of the 12th century. Um, and he had some, some interesting stories about... The, and he... Um, it was, I, I thought that the biggest revelation out of that is he told us about the guy who wrote Genghis Khan and how he, he is he's a lifetime um, obsession with, with uh, creating winning songs for Eurovision. And in fact, it turns out that he has a song in this year's competition, that the guy is still active, still writing uh, Eurovision songs for uh, this year for San Marino, which is one of the few we haven't covered yet. So when we get to it, we have to do a compare contrast with Genghis Khan from 1979. The Genghis Khan song is legendary, by the way. Like, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's something. Ask, yeah, exactly. It really captured the imagination. It's quite the disco spectacular. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. Well, um, we will play those interviews in just a second. But I, I Matt, I want to give you uh, and the opportunity to plug something that is happening uh, next weekend in New York. And by next weekend, I mean Saturday, May eighteenth of twenty thirteen, um, in the East Village. Uh, there in New York, because. Uh, well, Eurovision is actually upon us, the actual song contest. It's not just something that kind of happens online that we make videos about it. There actually is, like, a time and a place where the contest uh, takes place and, like, you know, thousands yes. of people go to Malmo and, and, and like, uh, you know, dance the, dance the night away. And so uh, what are we doing to commemorate the occasion? Well, in, in previous years, I've invited uh, some people over to my apartment to watch it, just to watch it streaming uh, online. So you, you know. are inviting the entire audience of the Overthinking It podcast over to your apartment? Yeah, well, that was my first plan. I, I, I don't want to compare it, to, but here's the thing. like My apartment can't fit everybody, and I don't want to, to belittle the movie Sophie's Choice by comparing my, my invite list to Sophie's Choice. I'm going to compare it to the movie 2012 instead. <laughs> Imagine if there was a giant boat that was going to save everybody from the giant tidal wave that was caused by the giant earthquake or the volcano. I don't remember exactly why there was the giant tidal wave, but there's a boat and only a certain amount of people can fit in it. And and who do you who do you pick for the boat? And eventually, I decided that that uh, in the words of Rob Schneider, I think we're going to need a bigger boat. And so I have acquired a bar with a, a large back room. And now I'm now, pleased now to when see you it. say when you say you've acquired a bar, yeah, are you the yes, part owner of a bar? Solely so I'll, I will never again have to worry about a place to watch uh, Eurovision. No, I found it's actually the same bar that we did the Overthinking It fifth anniversary party in. So those of you who were there, uh, it was a great bar in a really cool neighborhood in the East Village. Um, and they apparently didn't mind us too much because they're, they're, they're letting us come back and use their back room. Um, so it's got a nice, uh, a large projector screen that we're going to hook up a laptop to and try to stream it live. Uh, 
technical, uh, I, I don't know exactly like what the quality is going to be, but just the fact that it's, it's, we're going to be able to like watch it at all in a bar with like, you know, a bunch of friends and ho- I'm hoping actual Europeans show up, you know, like where'd we get around and there will be people who actually, uh, understand the languages being spoken who show up in like, you know, uh, the, the national Jersey of like Lithuania to root, um, so yeah, I mean it should it should be really interesting. Everyone is is certainly welcome to come. There's no cover or anything. Um, so this this place is the 11th Street Bar. Um, I don't have the address on me right now, but I'm sure it will be it will be repeated ad nauseum at the end of the podcast and and will be in the show notes. Uh, but it's going to be at the 11th Street Bar and Eastern Standard Time. We're talking about a three o'clock start time for the show. It's a nine o'clock in Sweden. Um, and so that if you guys want to show up around like 2.45 to get settled in and get your beer, um, and the show will probably run about three hours. There's going to be like 20 different performances, but they need time to flip the stage, and there's going to be like an interview with ABBA while they're trying to kill time, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, like about three hours, and then the votes will trickle in. Uh, but it should be it should be interesting. It's a good time to hang out with friends and, and to, to see what all the, the madness is about. That sounds excellent. So that will be Saturday, May 18th of this great year of 2013. Uh, Saturday, May 18th from 2.45 p.m. Uh, until we... 6.30-ish or whenever it's done. Until we shut the place down. Uh, yeah. That's Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, it's at the 11th Street Bar in the East Village. That is 510 East 11th Street excellent. in Thank New you. York. So, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. All right. So um, we'll be back a little later uh, talking about The Great Gatsby. First, uh, here are some interviews. Two Matt's interviewing two kings. Uh, First, our interview with Martin King, followed by our interview with Dave King. We are back. We're here with Martin King. Martin, welcome to Overthinking It. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to have you. Martin King, uh, historian, author, international man of mystery, and uh, lyricist in the Eurovision Song Contest. Martin, can you tell us about about yourself just a little bit and say a little bit about what your main line of work is? Absolutely. Uh, So I'm a professor of history. Uh, I taught at the University of Antwerp, um, from originally from uh, Scotland. My, my parents are English and Scottish. I moved to Belgium in 1981 to finish my education, and um, then I accepted various positions at various universities until 2007, when I was asked to be the senior consultant at the History Channel um, in Los Angeles. Um, I made three series for the History Channel. I'm currently editing my fourth series, and um, I have a new book out. And the music thing was uh, an interesting diversion. I've always been a musician. I was a classically trained musician. And um, I had a contract with EMI as a writer. Uh, because I used to write the background music for my documentaries as well. Oh, I see. I used to score all the music and, uh, you know, do the arrangements and stuff. And very occasionally, you know, I would write um, music and lyrics for some people. Uh, but never really uh, never really tried to achieve anything in that department because I was too busy with my, my, uh, my history channel work and... Um, 
Well, let, me, um, let me ask you sort of stylistically what kind of yeah. music you you tend to compose because the 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 Belarusian song the the Eurovision song I would describe that as like sort of a like a Latin type feel. Well, yeah. Now, strangely enough, I was involved with an artist here in Europe called Bel Perez, who was a Latin artist, and uh, she she recorded a lot of songs in that style. You know, and I, I was heavily influenced by people like Tito Puente, um, Cuban and Latin music, and I've always loved this stuff. And so, you know, uh, Soleo was basically just an extension of that. Really, I mean, it's it's a, a style that I'm very very comfortable with. Uh, but I, I didn't actually do the music with it. I just wrote the lyrics for this. But um, I, I kind of collaborated with a guy. Uh, we wrote five or six songs together some years back. And um, he's in Malmo at the moment. He made it. And you are, you are not in Malmo. <laughs> no, I'm not invited. I'm, I'm, oh, no. I'm persona non grata. <laughs> oh, dear. Which, no. Ah, no, it doesn't trouble me. It did it originally, I must admit, it did bother me a little bit. But the thing is, when the whole thing was kind of developing, I was I was editing my latest book. And they said, oh, you know, we're going to use your song for the Eurovision Song Contest. I said, oh, that should be nice. That would be interesting. You know, knock yourselves out. Go ahead. And the next thing I know, um, oh, I'm on the team. I'm going to Malmo and it's all going to be, you know, uh, parties. And well, um, <laughs> apart from being too old for such activities, <laughs> I don't think I would have looked really uh, comfortable around you know but what happened then was that what transpired was that they they kind of said oh well you know the budget doesn't extend to including you i said well fine you know that's that's all right i i just felt a bit snubbed by the whole uh-huh. situation but you know i mean the, the thing is writers globally are underappreciated people you mean like you lyricists know, lyricists definitely yeah, i mean yeah. Where would Burt Bacharach have been without Hal David? Sure. You know, I mean, lyricists are the guys that make the songs, in fact. You know, you remember the tunes and you remember the words. And, uh, you know, I I just think that writers are are generally underappreciated. Lyricists are generally underappreciated. Where would Elton John have been without Bernie Taupin? Right. You know, I mean, these are the people who who make the songs, in fact. But... uh, you know, we're not we're regarded as surplus to requirements, so uh, that's fine. Sure, it seems. I mean, it seems like especially with with uh, pop music, there's almost this fantasy that it kind of emerges fully formed, right? Like Athena from the head of Zeus, from the head of the singer. You know, yeah. as though they could, as though they could construct the song uh, all by themselves. Yeah, that's actually, it, it reminds me. There's a there's a Taylor Swift. A Pepsi commercial on TV now, and I was reading where, where you sort of see her. I forget what the what the sound what the sound of the song specifically is. I'm sorry, it, it may have been Diet Coke. I'm I'm trying to uh, trying trying to Google it frantically. But the deal is that you see her writing a song, <laughs> sort of scribbling the lyrics, and then you sort of like cut to like people all over the world sort of singing them. So there's this fantasy that like Taylor Swift is sitting alone in a room coming up with the song and then like that song is her gift to the world in fact that very song was not written by her at all it was brought to her um and so even in songs that um that that like you know it's 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 known it's 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 nobody's hiding the fact that taylor swift doesn't write her own music there's still this commercial that's telling this this fantasy that she is like this this singer songwriter auteur absolutely you know the thing is that 
people remember the artists and they'll remember the songs, but they'll very rarely remember the people who actually write them. So, you know, uh, I, I don't agree with that situation. I think I think it's, uh, you know, that writers are basically slighted because of this. But we're living in a time when people want the full package ready and finished and done, and we don't care who's behind it as long as we can see what we're getting, and that's it, that's enough. And, you know, the mechanics of how the thing is assembled is basically surplus to requirements when it comes to the information side of things. So, But I liked your analogy. It was very, very good. Um, you know, the thing is that uh, we are, in fact, and I use the um, – I'm not using the royal we here. I'm, I'm using the, you know, the collective we for writers, lyricists. So, you know, the, we are basically underappreciated. So that's fine. That's how things are. And, you know, I mean, all the arse-aching that I could do on the subject wouldn't change a thing. You see, we want things fast now and faster and faster, and we just want to see the finish – thing, the end product. Nobody's going to say to uh, the Belarusian lady there, Aliona, I think her name is, uh, Aliona Lanskaya, they're not going to say to her, who wrote the lyrics for this, by the way? You know, nobody, the question's not even going to come up, so, you know, I'm not going to lose any sleep about this. Mm. I mean, thankfully, I have another occupation. Now, if I was solely reliant on that, I would be deeply offended, you know. Uh, but thankfully, I've got a thick skin, something to do with being from the north. Yeah. So let me ask you, uh, it's no secret that Overthinking It would really like to write a Eurovision song someday. We are, we are deeply uh, saddened by the fact that the United States, for some reason, has not been allowed to join the European Union. Um, and I think <laughs> you, give us, you give us hope in a way because you show that somebody who is not from a, Europe, a certain European nation can still end up uh, uh, collaborating on their Eurovision song. So I kind of want to know how it is that you got, you got hooked up with the, with the Belarusian cultural ministry or, or whatever it is that's responsible? <laughs> well, for a start, um, I should say that Belarus isn't in the European Union either. Neither is Israel. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the Eurovision point. contest is. Yeah, is, so maybe is, there is hope for the United States too. I don't think you have to be necessarily European or from a European connected country to write for the Eurovision. What you have to do, you have to know someone on the inside. Now, it's a closed shop. Now, this guy who asked me to write the lyrics, he's been doing Eurovision for years. He, he actually made a career out of it. Uh, Mark Palink made a career out of writing for countries like Croatia and Malta and, you know, these, like, obscure little countries in many cases, but they were in the Eurovision. And he explained to me uh, that, uh, you know, financially, of course, it can be very interesting. Not in the beginning. I mean, you know, you can have uh, a European uh, song, a Eurovision song winner, and still not have a pot to piss in, excuse my expression. But, you know, the thing is, what comes back to you is through the royalties. And um, now that's when it gets interesting because Mark Palink's a Belgian, but he actually went to live in Switzerland. <laughs> Uh, now, you don't go to live in Switzerland if you don't have a pot to piss in. You know, you, you go to live there because it's a tax haven, because you've made a stinking amount of money. And uh, that's what he did. You know, I mean, he makes a career out of the Eurovision. And it's just so happened that I won 
song uh, one um we wrote a song together some years back and he said i'm gonna put this with the, i'm gonna try and place this with the belarusian team with, the, with the team so are there are there teams i mean are there people pitching i guess there are people pitching songs to the artists and yes maybe, there are right there are people pitching songs to the artists and then the uh, bro- the national broadcaster or some other process within each country picks the representative who's going to who's going to be the submission in the in the United Kingdom, it's gone completely uh, offside because they've. I mean, last year they put in a guy who's older than me, Engelbert Humperdinck, um, and seventy three, I think he was. He is. Well, even uh, even Bonnie Tyler this year is not. Mm. You know, it's not like she was. Not like she's twenty years old. With all respect to Bonnie Tyler, she's yeah, a she's a legend. She's you know she but. is a legend. Total eclipse of the heart and all this stuff. Yeah. But you know, I mean, that was twenty five years ago, and they've kind of you know dragged her in to do this now. And I don't know why. I don't know how the selection process works in the United Kingdom. I know how it works in most European countries. Um, basically, what happens is they have um, a, a contest to see who's going to represent the country. And um, Belarus did that, and um, Aliona, she won the contest with another song completely, Rhythm of Love. Um, Now, you know, my heart bleeds for the guy who wrote that because um, Mark Parling persuaded them to use another song, uh, the song that we wrote together. And, uh, you know, he's such a persuasive guy that he got his own way. Let's turn to the lyrics themselves a, uh, a little bit and and sort of what the um, what they mean. I mean, were you, did you set out to convey a message or a particular sort of flavor uh, in in the song? Yeah, well, absolutely. Now, the the the, the thing is that um, Soleo is is a utopian ideal. It's uh, it's supposed to be you know a hassle free place where everybody gets on with everybody, you know and. Uh, the idea, it wasn't deep at all. I mean, come on, it's your vision. <laughs> You're not going to quote, quote from Dostoevsky about this. So it was something that was supposed to be, um, you know, a, just as a hassle-free place. You know, and it, it's about young people and enjoying themselves. And, you know, it, it really, there was not a great deal of deep thought when into writing those lyrics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, um, I when we originally wrote this song, you know, um, we just wanted to write something that was um, light and airy, and you know, didn't have many double entendres in it. Mm-hmm. Something that was easy to remember. And you know, I mean, I've got a friend who's got a five-year-old kid, and we played the song to him. And after two playings, after turning it twice, his kid was singing the lyrics of the chorus I thought, no, no that's a good thing, I think <laughs> you know uh, so it's one of those easily kind of recognisable um, boppy happy sort of tunes, you know there's no, there is no hidden agenda with the song, what you listen to what you read is, is really what it's about it's I not mean. a secret political allegory <laughs> for some, oh, some, sort of, uh, some sort of situation within a, a former <laughs> Soviet state that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I would love to write something about that. I mean, you know, I, I have, you know, I have very little knowledge about this country. I've never been. 
Uh, I've not been invited to go either. Um, I have very little knowledge about them. You know, it's, uh, I just know the population is less than Belgium, which is 10.5 million. I think it's like 9 million or something. And, um, you know, they, um, I don't know what, I don't even know what language they speak there. You know, I don't know these people. Uh, I, I, you could probably tell me more about the country than I could tell you. Which basically, you know, it seems to me like I'm a kind of surrogate here, you know, and this country has adopted a song um, that I wrote, the singing a title that I wrote, and they don't want nothing to do with me. Um, but that's their thing, you know, it's all about the show, it's Eurovision. They want to impress, they're going to impress. I, she will put on a great show. There's no doubt about it. She will be very, very good because that young lady has been rehearsed until she's blue in the face. They really are on top of the game, you know, when it comes to presenting a show to these people. So, you know, good luck to them. Absolutely. Well, we know you're you're coming to the States on book tour to promote your latest oh. book, A Work of History. We wouldn't have you on without letting you get a plug plug in for that. So tell us the name of the book and, and uh, we'll put in a link so that people can order it online. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Uh, the, the title of the book is The Tigers of Bastogne. And uh, it's a work that um, has been co-written with my uh, American co-author, a chap called Michael Collins, who's up at um, Albany College, uh, upstate New York. The, the book has been compiled from first-hand veteran interviews. So we kind of, you know, find the veterans who were there, the last of the, no, the last of the few, and we interview them, we film them. That is what floats my boat. That is what gets me going. Uh, that is worthwhile. You know, the Eurovision Song Contest is just a distraction. <laughs> well, you didn't, you didn't hear that. You didn't hear that from us. All right, this is. No, it's a nice distraction. You know, I mean, it's great fun. It's lovely. And uh, if they invite me to Minsk after the contest, I won't go. Dare <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, if if uh, anyone invites us, us all to Soleo, we would all uh, be on the first plane. I'm sure. But absolutely, we would. Absolutely, I think uh, you know this this utopian ideal is something that's been in society for thousands of years. You know, we've all had a version of it in some form or another. Uh, if you read uh, Plato, he had. Um, Oh, no, it wasn't was it Plato who wrote Atlantis. You know, that was a kind of uh, utopian society. Every society has a utopian ideal. And when we couldn't find it in, a, in an earthly sense, then we'd form an esoteric or an ethereal version of it and call it heaven or nirvana or paradise or anything you want. But every society would have some version of that. And this is what Saleo is. It's, it's a utopian ideal. It just basically conforms to every other utopian ideal that's ever been, you know. No deeper than that. <laughs> well, this has been uh, this has been Martin King, historian, uh, scholar, international man of mystery, author of Tigers of Bastogne and uh, Voices of the Bulge, and the lyricist for the Belarusian entry in the Eurovision Song Contest. Martin, thanks very much for joining us on Overthinking It. And thank you very much for inviting me and for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate it, and it's been great. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. All right, we are back with Dave 
King. Uh, Dave is a musician living in Europe, though originally an American. Dave, welcome to the uh, Overthinking It. Oh, it's nice to be here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's wonderful to have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I listen to you guys all the time. So I, I... <laughs> oh, it's tremendous. That's Thank still you. astonishing. To, that's still astonishing. To yeah. Yeah. We can't believe that anybody really is interested in our little show, much less people the world over. So uh, you do us a great honor, sir, to, to listen and to come on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So let me let me start off with a, a very quick story. So my wife is Israeli, uh, and I was at her family. Uh, I was I was with her parents for the holidays. They're in their early sixties, and I was reading a book. I had a book with me, and they asked me what it was. And it was a it was a novel about the life of uh, Genghis Khan. It was a it was a fictionalized account, and I just mentioned it's like oh, it's about Genghis Khan. And the two of them spontaneously, with with, with no planning, uh, just like turned to me, and were, they were just like Gang Gang. Genghis Khan, hey, right, ho, right, go, and I stared at them blankly because even though I, I knew about Eurovision, I know mostly about like you know the last like ten years, sort of since I started following. But you know, mm-hmm. being Israeli, they sort of grew up watching this, and uh, <laughs> they they knew this. They they had this song memorized, um, and and mm-hmm. I get the feeling that ever since 1979, anytime Genghis Khan was mentioned or read about, this song sprung into their mind unbidden. Um, and probably stayed for days. So that's, and that was like, you know, I immediately went and Googled it and I watched it. Um, and that's why I was very excited when, when I saw, um, I think you posted a comments on, uh, one of our videos and mentioned that you, in fact, were the original, uh, bass player for that song. Yeah. I, I, I played also the German contest, you know, the, the pre Eurovision contest. There were 10 songs picked for Germany, you know. And uh, we had a big program where we where we performed those songs here in Germany in Munich at the Rudy Sadelmeyer Halle. You can also find that in YouTube. Um, all right, so I want to I want to hear the story. So first of all, what were you doing in the late seventies, and how did you come to to be a part of that band? Okay, uh, well, actually, I, it's pretty simple. Ten years before, in '69, I came to Germany to live with my father. My parents were divorced. My father was a big opera singer already at that time. And I uh, came and stayed in Germany because it was great for me as a musician. There was no problem with alcohol drinking ages or silly things like in Kentucky. So <laughs> I just stayed over here and I could start working at 17 in jazz clubs and, and, and got into studio work and everything. And one thing led to another. I played with Donna Summer on Love to Love You in 1975. <laughs> oh, love to love you, baby. And um, and. After that, I had a lot of studio work, and out of all of this studio work came this connection to Ralph Siegel. He's the producer for um, the Grand Prix Song Contest. And uh, he asked us to play this the German contest here in Munich, the, the pre, pre-decision practically for the European thing. And so we, we did the television show for Germany, and Ralph Siegel, I'm pretty sure he's Jewish, too, actually, and he knew it was for Israel, so, and he always wanted to get as many songs as possible into the Grand Prix. This is, this is a funny guy, because he, most people, you know, composers, they compose for different singers for all kinds of events and things. Ralph Siegel composes 365 days a year just for the Eurovision. 
And I even played it at one of his New Year's parties in the living room. He came real sad to me and said, hey, Dave, this year I've only got, out of the 10 songs, I've only got seven in my publishing company and four <laughs> comp- and four compositions are mine. So, like, uh, his whole life was, you know, always aimed at, at the Eurovision Song Contest. This is something so, that we heard from uh, from another person involved in Eurovision, uh, a lyr- the lyricist, Martin King, uh, who said that um, that he collaborated with a composer who who just makes a living doing doing Eurovision. So apparently within the subset of musicians, within the subset mm-hmm. of composers, within the subset of popular music composers, there are Eurovision popular music composers where that Exactly. That thing is their bread and butter, which is surprising to me because the, you know, it seems reasonably stylistically diverse, you know, ranging from dance yeah. pop to, to pop ballads, right? Yeah. yeah, well, what they do is they get, they just use um, a lot of arrangers, different arrangers, different talents, and each, each arranger kind of does his own thing. You know, so the over the executive producer just tells everybody kind of, you know, you take this song, do something with it. Somebody else does something else with another song. And that's how you get this variety. You know, but basically it's all coming out of the same studio. (laughs) Sure. From the same I mean, from the same writing desk anyway. And that's I mean, that's really interesting because you think of uh, we were you know, we've been talking about this. You think you think about a a work of art, right, as Mm. being the product of an artist, Right, yeah. and I suppose different parts of it are the product of of different artists, but but these things go are are so collaborative, and they go through so many so many sort of iterations and versions, that, and and the people may not even know or or work together who are you know responsible in some part for the the finished product. That's amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of kind of like the phenomenon of Andy Warhol in the '60s. You know, all of a sudden he had a factory there and. He would say these are his paintings or his projects, but he had, you know, 50 people working for him. And that's kind of the same thing in, in Schlager music in Germany. Schlager music is like it's like the real bad country music in America, the real commercial thing, you know. Uh, I come from Kentucky, so I like bluegrass music, you know, the real stuff, the flattened scrugs and things that I grew up with. But when I hear commercial country music, it's like, well, you know. <laughs> and so Schlager music for me as a professional musician is always kind of, that you know, on the other, the opposite extreme, it's like really commercial, you know. <laughs> but but that's a big thing in Germany. It's popular, you know. You know, David, I was just uh, googling this uh, this Ralph Siegel guy, and he actually is extremely prolific in Eurovision. He's been uh, a part of the team for twenty Eurovision songs, including this very year. He is actually a, a co-writer of the the 2013 song from uh, San Marino. Which is, I, I believe, one of the few that we haven't covered yet. So oh. when we, when we review it, we'll make sure to mention that that Ralph Siegel is uh, is one of the great uh, Eurovision dynamos is behind that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if he still is now, but that was you know, 1979 was a while back. <laughs> but I yeah. know he was he was doing it for years. So yeah, he's. Very oh, and important. he he co-wrote the social network, the, the Facebook song from last year. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was he was part of. The, so yeah. yeah, he's looking at his his uh, he's done a lot of songs for Luxembourg, Germany, and then mm-hmm. in recent years he did uh, Switzerland. Uh, 2009 for Montenegro, 2012 for San Marino, and also 2013. So he seems to be the go-to guy for San Marino now. Um, it, it was yeah, funny. So- after 1979, when we did this thing, the next thing I heard from Ralph, it was about 85 when, when, when AIDS, AIDS came out. <laughs> Ralph wrote a, a pop song about AIDS. I mean, I don't think that made it into the Eurovision, but uh, that was uh, he was everybody was talking about that, you know? 
that, that's maybe is a good transition. How do you know how Ralph came to write? How, how, how did he sit down and decide, you know what Germany would love? A song about Genghis Khan, the, the Mongolian warlord of the, of the, you know, the 12th century. Yeah, we, we all kind of felt it was sort of tasteless, you know, this whole thing. But it, I don't know, you know, how history can make something, make a good guy out of a, a bad guy, you know. <laughs> it's kind of weird uh, that Ralph had that idea, though. I don't know. I don't know where he got that idea. <laughs> I mean, That's I mean, I played with him on some Boney M stuff too. You know, Daddy Cool and stuff like this. Uh, I I worked with him on some other stuff. Not actually. I'm sorry, not Ralph. I mean, that was Frank Farian, Boney M. This isn't Ralph Siegel. Ralph Siegel. <laughs> anyway, I'm thinking in German and English at the same time. Um, well, yeah, that's. I mean, that's interesting. I, so, yeah. could you tell us a little bit about the the uh, the expatriate experience as a as a musician, right? As a producer of culture, you can think of expatriates as sort of living in a place and kind of absorbing the culture of the place. But it sounds like you've actually been involved in in different kinds of of German music, popular music, uh, uh, you know, dance music, um, all mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. Uh, what, what? How do you? And you know, it's been a while, I guess, since you've lived in the states. But uh, since you've been stateside, or since everyone kind of knows what happens in in American pop culture because it's it's global mm-hmm. now. What? Uh, how? What's your perspective on sort of the German uh, music scene. Maybe you could give us a little overview of that compared with, you know, what we got going on here in the States. Well, um, there's sort of two sides to it. Up until the wall fell down, it was taken down in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down. Um, Americans were looked at differently. I, I was in sort of a, a good position, you know. I got great jobs, and I could be creative on on jobs, and I could put a lot of my own input as a musician. And that's what they liked me for, you know, because I would uh, be doing this kind of funky bass thing, like I was doing with Donna Summer on "Love to Love You." When actually before they were doing very straight Schlager music in Germany, you know. So Donna's "Love to Love You" was like a a milestone. It was kind of the beginning of disco in 1970 74 about. And um, and that's what they liked me for being an American. They had a lot of American English musicians uh, here during that time, and somehow after the wall came down, I have the feeling, <laughs> also the politics in America and all like the whole image of America has kind of suffered a bit, and uh, we aren't looked at the same way. It's kind of like the Germans are you getting this thing now where they're kind of like, well, we can do all this ourselves too. We don't need anybody else, you know. So. I feel it's a lot, it's getting it's become a lot tougher now just being an American here. You know, I mean, I'm I'm a professor at a music school here, so I, I've got my got my job. But uh, it's tough for freelance musicians. It's become much tougher than it was in the '70s and '80s. Sure, the scene has, has really changed here. Yeah. I think all over the world, not just in Europe, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's too bad. I mean, it's, it's just kind of politics and what happens, you know. What, I mean, the funny wars that America's gotten involved in and on. I don't want to get into that, but it's, it's it does have it influences everything, you know, the whole opinion of America and American music, and and besides hip hop, everybody's doing hip hop because anybody can rap. So the Turks are you know driving around my apartment here all the time playing Turkish hip hop music, and and the Arabs and the Iraqis and the Kurds from down the street, and they're they've all got their own rap music because you can do that in any language. And so uh, they all kind of feel like they invented it all, you know. And it's <laughs> a German guy recently told me he thinks rap music was invented in Stuttgart. So I said, yeah, cool, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't, you know, they're kind of forgetting history. And 
I think that, that's an interesting segue that, you know, we're, we've been trying to cover Eurovision. We've been trying to review the songs and even make some sort of predictions as to what we think is, is going to win. But what do we know? We're, we're Americans and, and we don't, and, and I'll totally admit that like all my favorite Eurovision songs barely make the finals, if that. So I'm yeah. curious if, if you follow the, the competition at all or you have any, you have any sense of like what types of songs tend to do well in recent years? Uh, well, I would say basically, it's. I mean, for me as a musician, when I played the Genghis Khan thing, it was like a you know a prostitute. You go to the job, you sit there all day, and you get a thousand dollars, and and you try to smile when the camera goes by, and you you know kind of act like you're interested. But the the professional musicians don't really care too much about it. But on the other hand, I noticed too that occasionally there is more you know a couple good songs or interesting songs. Those songs normally never make it. You know, it seems to be the songs that are. The weirdest, like from the costumes, what it looks like, the whole, you know, or, or women or whatever is, you know, used to, 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 as eye candy. Uh, these things are more important than the music in the end with Eurovision, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a weird a weird kind of contest, yeah. I mean, I do, I do think it's striking that over the years, the, the really the only breakout artist to, come, to be born by Eurovision is uh, ABBA. Who Waterloo was a song written for Eurovision, but that's yeah. you know you, you would you would think that in a way it would be a better launching pad for for acts that would that would have some sort of at least at least European fame. But there's a lot of sort of flash in the pan acts that have like one hit in Eurovision and maybe make the news for a little while, but then don't make a career out of it. Yeah, yeah. I did one gig with ABBA with, in, near Cologne. At the, oh, yeah? the uh, uh, Rheingold Hall, yeah, with the Adel- Kurt Edelhagen big band. That was, I guess, around then too, around the beginning of the 80s. One thing with Abba, I remember him walking around, you know, their mini skirts and on this <laughs> catwalk around the, the band. Yeah, that was funny. We didn't, we didn't pay too much attention to them, but they got very big. And I've worked with their producer in Denmark. He has a fantastic studio up there. Uh, his name's Puk, P U K. P U K? Nice. Yeah, I think maybe Wolfgang Puck or something. Yes, I forgot his first name. Okay. Is his name really Wolfgang? Um, he's not, is he? No, Wolfgang Puck's a German guy. That's somebody else. But it's something. Right, name I, I know. I know who he is. Sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But his last name is Puck. Yeah, unusual name. Yeah. So, will in fact, be watching the Eurovision competition uh, next Saturday. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll probably see it in the restaurant here, right downstairs, where I go to eat. They have a television. <laughs> I, don't, I don't watch TV, but um, yeah, they, in the restaurants they often have TVs. You know, and, and the Germans all watch this thing. Yeah. Nice. Well, I guess, I guess, if nothing else, you could root for uh, you could root for San Marino because okay. the Ralph Siegel connection. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, so Ralph is still around. I mean, I'm I'm 60 now, so Ralph maybe he's 70. I don't know how old he is. But. Not giving up on on another Eurovision uh, win. Wow! 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 <laughs> chasing that, chasing that brass ring. Yeah, yeah. We'll, have, we'll have to review his song, and 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 we'll let you know if he stays a chance. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, good. Uh, touch. This has been awesome. So Dave King is a uh, is a an American. He, he but from from uh, Kentucky, where the good bluegrass music is from, not from yeah. Tennessee, where the all the commercial. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> country music comes from uh, living in Germany, and uh, you know, thank you very much for talking with us about the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. That was nice. <laughs> we'll be right back. Thanks a lot, Dave. <laughs> we are back. Wow, Pete, can you can you believe that ABBA uh, actually played with a live band? 
That's that seems absurd to me. That I, <laughs> seems possible. Uh, all right, on to uh, we leave behind the subject of Eurovision and we come firmly to the American continent. Though uh, Fitzgerald, I guess, was a, was an expatriate, wasn't he, when he wrote uh, The Great Gatsby? Yeah, he was off getting punched by Hemingway in a bar somewhere, right? In Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, uh, on to The Great Gatsby, which has had its Baz Luhrmann um, uh, adaptation. Uh, I don't know. Adaptation seems like too uh, too weak a word, right? Interpretation, perhaps? <laughs> yeah. Interpretation is probably the best one. Because it's, 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 really, it's like almost like a cover. It's really a cover. It's like The Great Gatsby. It's, it's a cover movie. Uh, right. Like a cover band. Um, that's yeah, absolutely, and in, in in total monster ballad form. So, Pete, let let me um, start with uh, a confession. Mm-hmm. Um, because we were too busy reading the classics of Chicano literature in high school, I yeah. never read The Great Gatsby. That's unfortunate. I well, no, I this this film actually gives me occasion to, and I'm I'm excited, um, I'm excited to get around to it, and we actually may start something not for the Great Gatsby because uh, it's too late, but we actually it gave me the idea to start a uh, like a book club on overthinking it because there's so many books uh, being adapted into films, and the one we'll probably start with is Ender's Game, uh, and we know our own Ben Adams is a is a, a aficionado, really an world's actor. great. Greatest authority on Ender's Game. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot our new meme. Yeah, uh, the um, world's greatest authority on on uh, Orson Scott Card and Ender's Game. So, and and again, it's another one that I haven't read. So, with a neophyte and an expert, it might be a really interesting book club. I'm not quite sure how it'll shake out, uh, but that's uh, that's coming. So, so you you can spoil anything for The Great Gatsby. Um, for me, I'm immune to, to most spoilers. Um, cause I think there are greater pleasures to literature besides surprise. Uh, but, uh, but you're going to have to explain it to me like, like I'm a three-year-old. So I, no, I I'm, I'm going to explain it to you like you're an adult, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, man, and the people, so there's going to be blanket spoilers for the great Gatsby, the Boz Lerman movie, and also for the book. They're not that dissimilar, but they're dissimilar in certain ways. I'm also not going to spend a ton of time talking about the differences between the movie and the book because I last read the book in high school. No, I read the book in college again. And, uh, it's a long long time ago and the great gatsby is one of those books where you know you have a memory of reading it that that is faded in much the same way as the book itself is a description of faded memory uh-huh. right like um so it's it's like i know what it was about but i don't remember the details um i mean i remember i remember things that happen but i don't remember as i experienced them while i was reading the book and I feel like that's a very common experience with The Great Gatsby. Uh, I think like a lot of people read it kind of in a rush. It's not very long. Uh, it's not particularly challenging. Um, and there's a lot in it that I think you might not get when you read it at a certain age. Because after all, it's about hard drinking and partying. And, and if you're the kind of person who's very fastidiously doing your English homework in high school, <laughs> you may not be doing those things. And you may not be able to identify with them all that much uh, or remember them even. You might not get it when people are having sex and they're just not saying it because they're off in a room together, you know, it's that sort of thing. Um, But yeah, but so The Great Gatsby, uh, for for those who are totally unfamiliar with it and also for people who are familiar, just catch up with it real fast. It's a novel about the jazz age, about the 20s, takes place before the Great Depression, uh, but during Prohibition, and it is about... uh, 
old money and new money that lives in the Hamptons, basically. Except they're called West uh, West Egg and East Egg, and they're protru- geographic protrusions on the north coast of Long Island in the Long Island Sound. And it's about a guy named Nick Carraway, who is the unreliable narrator, who is telling you – in the movie, he's played by Tobey Maguire – telling you about a summer that he spent uh, hanging out with uh, Nick with uh, Jay Gatsby, uh, who is this fancy new money guy who has a big mansion in West Egg next to, next, next to where he lives. He's his neighbor, and he turns out to be involved in his life. And Gatsby throws these enormous parties, and he's tremendously mysterious, and he's described as the most hopeful person that, that he knows. He has this, this hope that is really contagious and uh, very charismatic. And it's a love triangle story between Gatsby, who is in love with this woman, Daisy, who is Nick Carraway's cousin. And Daisy lives in East Egg, where she married into old money, married to a boorish uh, man who nowadays would be referred to as a bro, but is also a huge bigot named uh, Tom Buchanan. Right, and so Gatsby meets Daisy during the war, and they fall in love. But he has no money, and he goes away, and he comes back with a lot of money, and he tries to construct this enormous public persona for himself by throwing these enormous gala parties at his mansion in the hopes that Daisy is going to come to the mansion to see the parties, and is going to be so impressed that uh, she's going to want to leave Tom and marry Gatsby instead, or at least be down to stoop, or is is marriage? Uh, no, that's actually not the point, and that, that's kind of like a really, really important part of uh, how The Great Gatsby works, both at more, even more so as a movie than as a book, which is that, yes, it's not that like Gatsby doesn't want to marry her for, like, social esteem. He doesn't want to marry her because he wants to, like, create, like, a legacy. It's not like that kind of marriage. It's not like he doesn't want to stup her. He certainly wants to stup her. There's a very visceral, emotional, and physical aspect to their relationship, but he does not want to just sleep with her. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene where... Um, in the movie, it's a scene that's in the movie as well as book where Nick Carraway is like, if only all he wanted to do was hold her, you know, that would be fine, right? Like, then that, then it would work out. Then it would be great. But he has this elaborate plan for, for, for her. And, and the, big, the big tableau from The Great Gatsby, the big moment that everyone writes their high school papers about is that Gatsby bought a house or made a, built a house. I forget which is which in the book, um, which is directly across from Daisy's house, across the bay, right? And so he goes out in this dock outside of his house, and he looks out at Daisy's house, and there's this buoy uh, at the end of a dock at Daisy's house, this little, this little light that blinks green, and that, and that Nick sees Gatsby. The first time he sees him, he sees Gatsby almost like reaching out for this green light. And the green light is supposed to be the American dream, is what every high school term paper says, right? It's, it's this thing that Gatsby is trying to achieve, who came from these dirt-poor roots, and it is this transcendent sort of fulfillment uh, of an idea, of an actualization of the self that has to do with happiness, that has to do with acceptance, that has to do with social status uh, and class, I mean, right? it's, it's, green. A, it's green. It probably has to do with money. Exactly. Well, that's, you know, that's the other big thing, right? And that, like, it's very tied up in being in love with Daisy for Gatsby, but it's not really entirely about Daisy. Like, to an extent, Daisy is kind of an idea for Gatsby in the same way that Gatsby is an idea for Nick, and so it's kind of turtles all the way down, right? Where it's like... um you know, it's like uh, you know, Ga- Nick is telling his therapist. It's a lot like Iron Man three. It's all related. <laughs> it's all related <laughs> in a framing device that of of him talking to a therapist. And and uh, the therapist is green also in Iron Man three. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> indeed, right. indeed. So it all ties together. It really. all ties together. It all ties together. But yes, but so so that's the story, right? Is the story is and it's about there's like a variety of melodramatic things that happen. But I I mean we'll talk about it as we talk about the movie. Um, and the Bosler. 
treatment. Uh, so the, the F. Scott Fitzgerald treatment is is it's very tragic. And it's kind of written with ennui, right? It starts out talking about uh, Nick Carraway's alcoholism that he's fallen into because he's been caught up in this lifestyle. It ends up indicting the various rich people who are involved in it pretty heavily. It's sort of tinged with a sense of hypocrisy because the rich people are talking about trying to build these wonderful lives for themselves and achieving these sorts of senses of personal satisfaction and and, and perfection. But they're surrounded by uh, poor people who are, uh, you know, kind of like their grand parties and opulence is built on the backs of of poor people. There's a big race angle in The Great Gatsby where Tom Buchanan is a huge bigot and he's a phrenologist and he talks about the inherent superiority of white people but all, he's being surrounded by black people providing him with services all the time uh, and so it's it's really awkward. Uh, you know, Jazz music is African-American music. Uh, it's portrayed that way in both the movie and the book um, but the jazz age is being enjoyed primarily by white Americans and like there's tension there too and it's tragic. Um, but Boz Lerman's interpretation, right? So what is Boz Lerman? So Boz Lerman, I generally don't like Boz Lerman. I, I, I didn't see, uh, I didn't see Romeo and Juliet. I hated Moulin Rouge. Like I hated Moulin Rouge when yeah. I saw it as a teenager. I, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, Pete, like I was really sort of bowled over by Moulin Rouge the first time yeah. I saw it. I think because I was sort of barraged by it in, in the way that I sort of describe being barraged this sort of sensory assault of films and i think like having been pummeled i walked out um of the the movie theater where i saw it on the big screen thinking that i enjoyed it just because i was spent you know (laughs) and and uh so i saw it later on like dvd on the small screen where you you really get to kind of consider things a little more critically i think because you know they're uh, they're contained in a frame that's that's a little more alienating right than the kind of like overwhelming you know huge many stories tall uh movie screens that you know that i like to go see movies on and and i have to say that from the very beginning you were right about moulin rouge and i was <laughs> and, and i was wrong the first time i the first time i saw it right like getting getting laid and getting beat up are two totally different experiences even though you're exhausted after both yeah. and uh i was uh i was beat up um yeah. though apparently i you know it's it's what it's a phenomenon in psychology called misattribution of arousal which is why you always have a crush on people at the gym right because your your yeah, heart rate yeah, goes yeah. up and the, those endorphins start pumping and and nicole kidman starts like uh barking like a dog and <laughs> ewan mcgregor is singing elton john and uh <laughs> you know and suddenly suddenly you're um so uh yeah, but um, it is it. Uh, are, so, are you saying that you did not like Great Gatsby as you did not like Moulin Rouge? No, I loved The Great Gatsby. Okay. I love this movie. Like this movie really moved me on numerous occasions. Uh, and it might it wasn't just because I'd spent the whole day traveling and was already exhausted and very vulnerable. <laughs> but um, no, I love The Great Gatsby. I feel like The Great Gatsby is. Is it's I mean it, I might even I haven't seen um, strictly ballroom I guess and I, again I haven't seen his Romeo and Juliet either his other Leonardo DiCaprio movie but this feels like a pretty impressive piece of work I feel like it's a really great realization of what Baz Luhrmann is trying to do when he makes movies uh, and and, and I, I will I will frame that by saying what I feel like Moulin Rouge does, right, versus what Great Gatsby does and why it works with Great Gatsby and why it doesn't work for me with Moulin Rouge. Uh, he wants to annihilate whatever his source material is, right? <laughs> like, he just wants to just destroy it, right? And he's, he loves spectacle. He loves 
style, right? And he loves like things that are sexy and that and that are like you know captivating, uh, things that take the wind out of you, right? Things that like that like wow you. These moments that are that are deeply meaningful for you because of their their beauty, uh, but they're sort of like lavish. Like like sugary sweets, or it's hard to use words for it that aren't socially condemning because our puritanical American uh, cultural vocabulary is very ill-equipped for talking about it, or at least mine is. And this was part of why I had a problem with Moulin Rouge is that I was a very stern twenty-one-year-old at times, uh, and 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 was kind of uptight, right? And like thus, if you're puritanical about anything, you're not going to like what Boslerman is doing because Boslerman is like this is the thing that I want to look at that is that is. You're turning me on, right? Like that is getting me that is getting me captivated. That this is what matters to me in this circumstance. With Moulin Rouge, it's like they're singing on top of a bejeweled elephant in Paris, you know, and she has tuberculosis, right? And it's like <laughs> the heights of emotion that you're reaching, right? Yeah, it's a, it's also yeah. I mean it's a, like a maximalist aesthetic where yeah. like every inch of the frame is crowded with with kind of this signification that that sort of explodes in all directions and and whatnot. And whatever it is that your source material is, he's just running it over with a truck, right? Or with a 1920s car outside of a gas station. Spoilers for The Great Gatsby. <laughs> but, uh, but Moulin Rouge, he's running over, like, classic rock songs. <laughs> and I, at 21, really liked classic rock songs. So I was, like, really offended when, it, when like, Pride in the Name of Love, which is about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., was used in the context of a rather cheap and tawdry love affair between Ewan McGregor and Nicole. Kidman. Right. And the, the yeah, and the other thing about Moulin Rouge that I didn't like was that it was like um there's this sort of uh, is it style or is it substance? Right? It's like, well, this is just style. There's no substance to it. Now, the fact that Moulin Rouge is stylish is not what makes it lacking in substance. Right. <laughs> right? Like the thing that's making it lack in substance, at least for me, is that the p- that it requires a great deal of song interpretation. It's a musical, and the people doing it aren't musical actors, and they can't pull it off. And and it's poorly done. It's like phoned in, right? It's a stunt, right? It's but like it's, it's also, a. Stunt. I mean, there's something also about it that it's like, uh, you know, I'm thinking about other Baz Luhrmann movies that are like Romeo plus Juliet and Gatsby and like Australia, which and all of these things have source material, right? Like whether I mean the the Australia movie i think is like just the, the uh you know historical uh historical events but this these three like it's there is there is source material and and the source material for moulin rouge is sort of enthusiasm yeah yeah it's more general but i i didn't i didn't come here to bury moulin rouge. <laughs> if you love moulin rouge then great because i want to talk about how much i love great gatsby and that means you probably love Bos Lerman and i probably do too but the thing about the great gatsby that makes it fit so well is that it is okay to run over the great gatsby with a truck <laughs> the great gatsby is you know it's read in these high schools all over the place and colleges too it's it is has this outsized presence in our culture that as a.o scott you know, we, we criticized the New York Times last week for its review of Iron Man 3. A.O. Scott's review of The Great Gatsby, one of the things that it points out is that, like, the book can't really bear the constant reevaluation that it is taking from being having term papers written about it by literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of children, right? Like, it is just this sub 
object of this relentless cultural assault. It is already being hit by a truck, right? Like the Great Gatsby is already being disassembled and reassembled every year by our culture. Um, and also the Great Gatsby... I, you have a is- higher opinion of high school term papers than I have. Like to, to say that they are actually disassembling it, that they actually oh. come close come close to uh, to, you know, coping with the... You know, I don't know, with the the great cultural significance of Gatsby, right? Well, I mean, I would say that that I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that they are defeating it through a sort of superiority of intellect. I would say that any any cultural artifact that we deem to want to have of importance requires a certain stewardship, right? Like, for instance, you never even read The Great Gatsby because the people in your in your board of education or whatever people running your school thought that that it was more important for you to learn to learn about cultural pluralism than to learn about like this sort of high school canonical literature, right? Like, uh, and in that sense, they just declined to be stewards of the great gatsby unless you didn't learn about it right and and but it's like for everybody who is supposed to learn about the great gatsby the fact that it has hundreds of thousands of crappy term papers thrown at it every single year is also an act of of actively poor stewardship (laughs) i just i'm remembered of penny lawrence the widow of robert fitzgerald when i when i made a joke in class about william blake's the tiger and started sort of reading it i started reciting it in a sing-songy way in which it was always recited in high school and she stopped me and she he was like, don't destroy it. <laughs> like, don't do that. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal head. Don't do that. Don't in destroy the, it. Yeah, in the forest of the night. What yeah. immortal. Where, whereas I, I actually, for whatever reason, like I, I did get the, uh, you know, the force march through um, English romanticism in poetry. Yeah. And like, for whatever reason, maybe it was very late at night. When I read the tiger the first time, my, my brain exploded. I, you know, I must have been exhausted. But when, when, when I, when I got to the stanza that's like, what the hammer, what the chain, in yeah. what furnace was thy brain? I, it, like, I, I woke up and was like, oh, and, you know, I thought, oh, my God, this is the best effing poem that, you know, the mind yeah. of man has yet, has yet conceived. And, yeah, it's, uh, I, I agree that, like, there are a lot of very good works of literature like that, that w- where the circumstances under which we inflict them on, uh, uh, on children who should probably be doing something else with their time, right, totally ruins uh, yeah, everything. Yeah. But I feel like that, I mean, on one hand, it kind of ruins The Great Gatsby, but on the other hand, The Great Gatsby is about being ruined. Like, that's what, The, the this Great Gatsby is about um, the, uh, the, the, so it's about, gosh, how, I mean, how can I, how can I sum this up without sounding like a high school term paper? But it's about, uh, okay, so, so. Green is a color that often symbolizes wealth and <laughs> no, yeah, growth. Exactly. So, so there is a, the most important scene from a movie standpoint in The Great Gatsby, the movie, is uh, Nick Carraway and Gatsby are having a disagreement about whether you can recreate the past or not. Right, because because Gatsby he had this he had this moment with this girl five years ago. He's still in love with her, and he wants to wind back the clock and start his relationship with her over. And he thinks that she is going to tell her husband that he she never loved him, that they are going to go to her parents in Louisville, and that they are going to get married and they are going to pick up like it never like it never left off. Right, and and Nick is like, you can't do that. You can't recreate the past. Right. And, and, and Gatsby looks down at him and he says, uh, of course, you're, and later on the conversation, he says, of course you can. Later on the conversation, he looks down at him, he turns and he goes, you're wrong about the past. Now, here's the thing that makes this movie awesome. 
what is Leonardo DiCaprio doing when he looks down at Tobey Maguire and says to him, of course, you know, you're wrong about the past. Of course you can recreate the past. You know what he's doing? He's standing on a winding staircase with a wrought iron railing with his hair slicked back in a tuxedo. Right? Yeah. He, it's, it's, it's Jack from Titanic as an adult. Come back. Right. In all the glory of one of the great scenes in, you know, the last, you know, 20 years of romantic movies. Yeah. And he's like and he's not only is he telling you this and not only is it Fitzgerald kind of recounting it, but but he is showing it to you. Right. He's not only can you recreate the past, but I'm doing it right now for people that you're not aware of. Right. That are like beyond the the plane of this level of reality. Right. Like and it's just it's just an I think it shows what the movie is trying to accomplish. There's, there's, a, there's a symmetrical moment that might be accidental, but that really connected with me, um, where very early in the movie, Nick Carraway is going into New York, right? He's, he's going into New York City, and he's crossing the Queensboro Bridge, right? And the Queensboro Bridge uh, is, I'm going to like, it runs, between, it runs between Queens and Manhattan. Uh, and, but now, as, and he says, when you cross the Queensboro Bridge... Uh, it's it's like you see New York for the first time, right? Now the Queensboro Bridge uh, is on 59th Street. If you go up 10 blocks, you get to the Triborough Bridge, right? Right, which is a little bit farther north than the Queensboro Bridge, uh, I believe. Right now, why is the tri- Why is the the 59th to 70th Street crossing of uh, the East River into Manhattan important to Toby Maguire? It is where the climactic scene in Spider-Man takes place. Yep. Right? So, so the idea that, that Tobey Maguire is coming into a movie and being like, wow, on this bridge overlooking the East River, I feel like I'm doing this for the first time again. And, it's, and it, to me, it recalls Spider-Man, just in the same way that the moment with, with, uh, with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio recalls Titanic. And, and Gatsby, and again, spoiler, Gatsby dies by drowning in a pool after he gets shot. Uh, and he's shot because um, because of a, a car accident where his he was in a car and the car ran over the mistress of his lo- love interest, right? And it's like, well, the love interest probably like her husband was having sex with this lady, and the wife probably ran her over on purpose, but it's not clear. But Gatsby gets blamed for it. It's not really all that important why Gatsby gets shot. He gets shot for reasons that aren't entirely his fault, but are sort of part of his general myth. But there's the scene of his body floating in the water, right? And it's the same idea of this like incredible lost potential, right? And this like dead beautiful thing, right? And it's the same thing as is from Titanic. Right? I'll never it's, it's, let go. I'll never let go. He's still there, right? Uh, and, and Nick Carraway is talking about the past uh, and, and about how, you know, the, the past, gosh, I, I'm a little bit, I mean, honestly, I was a little emotionally overwhelmed by the whole cinematic experience, um, which is kind of crazy because it is kind of tawdry, right? Like the other big thing about this interpretation and the thing that you'll hear everyone talk about is that um, the party scenes are like blow the doors off opulent, crazy, I guess I could say awesome if I use the word awesome trivially, but they also are heavily populated by um, contemporary, like, hip-hop remixes. Yeah, <laughs> music, right? The, the sort of anachronistic music to sort of yeah. give the sense of, I yeah. don't know. 
It'll be like it's like a heavy club remix of Gershwin, right? Or like because Jay Z is an executive producer on the movie, sure, right? And so like there's there's Jay Z songs, there's Gershwin songs, there's other like contemporary songs that are like remixed in certain ways, and he's going for a specific aesthetic where it's like. I, as Baz Luhrmann, am captivated by certain aesthetic and stylistic qualities of the 20s. I think that they're really awesome and sexy and exciting. They turn me on. Uh, I want to put them in a movie, right? And I'm putting them in a movie not as historical artifacts, but because I think that they are awesome. And this this moment that they inhabited is like a sexy, awesome, stylish moment that I want to have exist again on film. Um, and, and so I'm, and I'm going to use this music that's contemporary because I don't want to teach people about it. I want to put people in the position of experiencing it, and I'm going to choose music functionally that does the thing that I want these, that this moment does for me, and I want it to do it to them, right? And the thing that it's doing to the characters, I want it to do it to them. So if you think about club music as being something that's kind of like, it, atta- it, attach- it attacks you emotionally, and it, it disorients you. Um, like, there's a great line in, in, uh, in one of the characters in Great Gatsby says, I hate... Small parties, I love big parties. Uh, in small parties, there's no privacy, right? Yeah. Uh, in large parties, you have much more privacy, right? Because people, um, they can't see you because you're lost in the crowd. And right. there's confetti that's flying all over the place. And you can really see the anonymity that's provided by this. The pounding club music, the throbbing bass, the flashing lights. It's all a form of sensory, sensory bombardment to give you this illusion of privacy and anonymity. Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, it is kind of Blakeian, right? It's that fiery figure that is like, you know, the star is shooting across the black canvas and there's all the sculpted muscles of this meteoric, you know, English romantic figure that Blake is painting. Like, how is that all that different from, like, the club can't really handle me now, can't even handle me now? Yeah, right. right? Like, you're like, you know, it's like a Kesha song or a Lady Gaga song, right? It's like, um, you know... Yeah, I mean, no, no, they go hardcore and there's glitter on the floor. Indeed, indeed. But that's the idea, right? Is that like Gatsby is creating these giant moments of beauty and spectacle. He is doing it because he has this hope and aspiration for this self-fulfillment that's rooted in his love for Daisy. Uh, but it's also rooted in his class issues and all this other stuff. Um, but he, but this, this yearning and hope uh, has created this glorious thing. Right, and then and then the movie is showing it to us. And in that way, the other thing I thought about is the movie is a lot like Jurassic Park. Um, because like we talked about this during our Jurassic Park podcast, you know, Spielberg takes Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, which is like a cautionary tale about not doing the dinosaur thing, right? And is like, you know, what would be great if we just did it, the dinosaur thing in a movie, right? Like, like in the movie, Jurassic Park is an awesome place. The only thing that stinks about it is that if it were in real life, people would actually die, right? But we are happy to see the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. We're excited. We even like the raptors in Jurassic Park, um, so does that make sense? Am I make, I'm like pretty excited talking about this. So, um, I mean, does that comparison make sense to you? Yes. And I, no, no, it absolutely, it absolutely does. And there are, there are people who, um, uh, there are people who are kind of purists or who are kind of puritanical, much, much like your, and I should add my 21 year old selves, uh, who can't abide that kind of cinematic freedom. Uh, when, when the Academy of Motion Picture Arts Sciences wanted to give Jean-Luc Godard like a lifetime achievement award, um, I may be bugger, I may be like just, uh, screwing up certain parts of this story, but, uh, but, uh, the essence of it, I think is, is 
true, much like a Baz Luhrmann adaptation. Um, the uh, uh, the Academy wanted to give Jean Luc Godard a, uh, a lifetime achievement award, and this was you know immediately in the wake of Schindler's List. Um, and uh, he refused on the grounds that Steven Spielberg was allowed to rebuild Auschwitz, right? And that, like, uh, for him, the, the, the sort of the representation of a historical evil is tantamount to the historical evil itself, um, you know, to which, I mean, not as regards the Holocaust, but as regards that argument in general, uh, I reply, um, dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Um, I, I think, I mean, I think Great Gatsby definitely has this sort of issue, um, and I was thinking, because... Um, right, because the, the, there's the review, a couple of the reviews that I read, one of them is is Anthony Lane's review, and he sort of, he sort of takes issue uh, with the, the kind of the, the enjoyment, the, the, like, the sort of throw yourself into it, maximalist aesthetic, uncritical enjoyment, uh, absolute pleasure, uh, parties. And yeah. because like, um, in, in a book like, uh, like Gatsby, which is, you know, not wholly uncritical of this, like Amer- this American dream. Um, I would say like, is the canonical text that damns it, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, right. exactly. And the, yeah. the, he said that, that in this context, um, like uh and and people apparently have been having like great gatsby themed parties around yes. the movie and like dress dressing up around it and and he said that like uh you know um having a having a great gatsby themed movie party is like is like throwing a lolita themed birthday party for your daughter oh oh that's not appropriate <laughs> well it's i mean yeah. well it, like it, it, right and like his again he, he's maybe a little uptight about it but like he thinks it's it's equally inappropriate though obviously in a different way um yeah. you know I, I, to, to my parents actually went to great gatsby parties back in the 80s uh, that, that happened in northern new jersey so i know that they've been that's not something that's exclusively new although that might have been around the red robert redford movie <laughs> um, <laughs> It went to the great. Oh, 1974 was when the Robert Redford Great Gatsby movie came out. So that one also spurred a variety of similar imitation parties. Um, but that, I mean, that's a, that's let's. But there's two sides that I want to approach that from. Uh, the first side is, um, well, the first side is, what responsibility do we have while uh, partaking? And, and I feel like the years of overthinking it are starting to change my opinion of this. Uh, but it's like, what is your, where should your conscience be uh, with regards to historical dialectic when you are watching entertainments of this sort? Sure. And I, I, I'm never one to say, you should just be having fun because that's not, that's like, I don't want to shirk responsibility. I don't want to like say we should be less rigorous in the way we approach material. And also you don't want to, you don't want to give fun short shrift as though yeah. like the only thing that's fun is, you know, switching off your, your critical faculties. Exactly. Or that fun is necessarily like racist. Right? <laughs> fun period is racist. No, they're not. Um, but, but like the thing is that like, you know, works of art are about many things at the same time. And if you are really, really preoccupied with specific sorts of historical dialectic all the time and you feel like the, the historical dialectics that ask of you a moral obligation are the ones that you always have to be concerned with because you always have to be afraid of being wrong or bad, then you can miss a lot of the other things that are happening in these works of art, right? Like, because The Great Gatsby is, to an extent, about race. Like, I remember in college, um, my friend Raph, uh, 
I had a difficult, I had a class I had a problem with. I, I disagreed with the professor on a lot of stuff. I walked out of a class once. Um, I, I didn't like my teaching assistant very much. And I wanted to write a piece about Robert Frost, right? For oh, is, this my the, is this the TA, the infamous TA that, that you told me about once who said that Robert Frost wasn't a modern poet because he wrote rhymed actual syllabic, uh, accentual syllabic poetry? Except that she didn't use the words accentual syllabic. She just said because it rhymed. Um, no, she 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 gave me a really bad grade because yeah, she I, sounds like an idiot. Well, it's not an idiot. She just wasn't. She was just was a divinity school student who had you know was t- was TGTing the course and didn't have the expertise to actually do it. Um, and I don't want to. I'm sure if I met her now, I would want to be nice to her. But I was pretty angry at the time. That was actually the one where the follow up is. Uh, she said you didn't quote Robert Frost enough. So it's like what I have to prove that I read the Robert Frost in college. <laughs> I mean, it's like I read the freaking Robert Frost. Um, like why? What other reason? It's like you didn't you didn't quote the poetry enough while you were talking about it. Yeah. So the way I got back at her is I wrote a paper that just. Listed all of the instances that water was referenced in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Like, it just listed them. Just said, water is listed here, and here, and here, and here. Water is talking about rebirth, and here's another time he's talking about water and rebirth. And this one, too, and this one, too, and this one, too. T.S. Eliot talks about water a lot in The Wasteland. Like, a yeah. plus. Yeah, he's like, she's like, this is almost like reading The Wasteland. It's <laughs> like, that's because I didn't say anything. Uh-huh. But anyway, so, I, I, so Raph told me Pete... Why are you torturing yourself? Just write about Gatsby and race. And I was like, I don't want to write about Gatsby and race. And part of why I don't want to write Ga- about Gatsby and race is that race, while it's part of Gatsby, is not the part of Gatsby that interests me. And, and thus, I don't want to feel like my obligation to point out the social wrongs that are portrayed in The Great Gatsby, which are – they are there in enough complexity and sophistication that I don't feel like F. Scott Fitzgerald is telling you to be racist, right? Like, um, but I don't want to be so preoccupied with that that I can't talk about things that I find actually interesting about it, right? Yeah. Which are this idea of how am I going to um, – what, what is the, the link between aspiration, material aspiration, personal aspiration, and pers- interpersonal connection, right? And it's like you're, you're trying to connect with another person as a way of fully realizing yourself, and you're trying to do this with, in line with memory, but your, your idea of the present doesn't match up with the way that you wanted it to be, and there's this tragic disconnect that you can never really get across, right? It's, it's very Benjamin, it's very Proust, this sort of relationship with the past that's very heavily problematic, and Gatsby is this heroic figure because he tries to transcend it through this sense of hopefulness, and, uh, and he fails, ultimately, uh, to do so. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I sort of forgot how we got down that rabbit hole about talking about. We were, ta- um, we were talking about uh, sort of. Uh, we were talking about like uh, Gatsby parties and also about Jean Luc Godard. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so Gatsby parties. Okay. So the parties. So the one side. So the one I said there were two sides for which we I wanted to approach the Gatsby parties. The one side I just said, which is that it's problematic to always be on your high horse every time you're talking about these things, right? Because it's not the only horse that you can ride. You have other horses other than your high horse that you could use, and thus, like, you should spend some time with some of the other ones. The other side of it is that um, that the parties aren't necessarily bad. Like the parties are indicted. As as and he he really doesn't like Daisy and Buchanan and some of the other characters at the end of it for be, for not creating anything for not doing anything positive with their lives for not contributing to people around them, but the 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 yearning that is behind the parties and I, and I really feel like. Um, if you're if you're in a sort of like I don't want to say postmodern because that's such a lazy way of calling it that, but you're if you're in a sort of like 
you know, post-existential, desert of the real, depressed kind of way of looking at human existence. Like, one of the things that I feel like you can really turn to uh, for some positivity is, like, yearning. Like, what do people really want in their hearts, right? And this is the English romanticism that we're talking about, too, which I think um, you're taught it as a teenager in a very cheap and tawdry sort of way. And then if you revisit it as an adult, either you dismiss it entirely or it really connects with you. And I mean, I really like it, right? Where it's like, you know, no, I have these overflowings of emotion that don't reconcile with the sort of darknesses of the world. And I refuse to let the darknesses of the world entirely eliminate that part of who I am and my experience of things. Right. And through that, I will guide that into other sorts of things, ideologies, spiritualisms, notions of the self, all this other stuff. Gatsby throws the parties um, out of this yearning. People go to the parties chasing after this yearning, right? And and these these parties are set against the the, the juxtaposition with these this place he has to drive by on his commute every day, which are the this the ash pits, the famous ash pits. This is the other famous tableau from the Great Gatsby, which is that after they burn the coal to provide energy for New York City, there's a place where all the piles of ash go, and there's workers that shovel the ash all day, and there's clouds of ash all over the place, and there's an old billboard from an out-of-business optometrist with these eyeglasses, right? And so, and Fitzgerald and Nick Carraway said that these eyeglasses are like the eyes of God that are looking out over the ash pit. Right, and this is like Benjamin writes about this too, right? Where it's like this is the sort of like you know dust to dust, all history is crap. You know, our modern civilization is falling apart, and and everything you know nothing is worth anything, and everything is terrible, and and we all have the sense of despair at the future. Um, and then these parties that Gatsby is throwing are what people go to to get away from this. And the Jazz Age is kind of a way of trying to escape this sense in modernism. That's the other big paper you can write is that the Auschwitz are modernism and the 20th century after World War One, everyone thought there was no point to anything anymore. So you have the Auschwitz, right? Like that's the other high school term paper you can write. Um, and, and so – you could say that Gatsby indicts these parties as being empty and hedonistic, but I feel like you're kind of importing that into the story, right? Because they're really – the reason they're problematic is a little bit more complicated, and, and that just has to do with the fact that they're ultimately futile, right? And that, and that people also go to them um, th- – and that Gatsby thinks that the people are going to them um, – well, he thinks that at least Daisy going to them – um, is, is sort of fueling his yearning or connecting with his yearning in some way, and he turns out to be wrong, and that's tragic, right? But, but I don't think that this indicts Gatsby putting on the parties at all, um, nor do I think it indicts people wanting to go to the parties because um, certainly that's something that people want to do, right? And that maybe they have yearnings. Maybe they're chasing after something. Maybe they're trying to connect with somebody too. Maybe people going to the parties don't see themselves as Tom Buchanan but see themselves as Gatsby, right? Um, and maybe it's a bunch of little Gatsbys, you know? Maybe Gatsby isn't the only admirable person. Because Scott Fitzgerald has this terrible, like, I never met anyone else that ever interested me except this one man when he writes Nick Carraway, right? Sure. But it's like, I feel like most people meet a bunch of interesting people. Um, and so, yeah. So those, that's sort of my kind of cobbled together but very enthusiastic defense of the Gatsby party. No, yeah. It's, I mean, it's very, it's very interesting to me. Like, the, the, the idea – and I especially connect with something that you said about, like, um, sort of uh, – that there's kind of a dutiful bowing to certain political issues in certain works of literature, right? That you, that you sort of have to do. And it's, it's, I, you know, I've, I honestly, I, I honest, well, I don't know. Don't send me hate mail, but I've been, I've been like less and less patient um, with that recently in, especially in like maybe the recent month as there's been kind of a lot of political discourse uh, on, 
on overthinking it. Um, mm-hmm. The the sort of the the um, the sort of impoverishment uh, of our of our conceptions of ourselves, and the the sort of uh, impoverishment of our idea of what we go to. Um, what we go to art for or in- yeah. entertainment, if you want to, you know, if you, if it's, if you think it's just crass, right? Like what we go to that for, um, you know, the, the idea, you know, the idea that like you are supposed to be at all times your best self in a way that comports with your most stringent political convictions is I think like, that's a losing battle, you know? Yeah. And, and it's also like, I don't know, there's something like, there's something kind of regressive about it because it's so puritanical, uh, you know, in its own, you know, in its own kind of, in its own way. Like you're entitled to have mixed feelings about things, right? Like you're entitled to have more than one thread, uh, you know, to your life. You're entitled to have bad days, you know, where, uh, (laughs) you know what I mean? Where the, the, the politics backslides a little bit in the name of like, I don't know, enjoying a a, a tasty donut or something. I don't know. I mean, yeah. But I also, I also say, I mean, the thing is I don't object to any, particular one of these conversations that have happened i just don't want it to be the only conversation that happens right of like getting into that habit of that being the only thing you talk about but but even to flip it further to like move forward even a little bit more on it and flip it further is like there is boz lerman is saying i want to talk about how fun this party is and how exciting this party is this is what i think is awesome he he clearly likes the parties more than fitzgerald does and the movie brings that out um i'm sure the 3d version would bring it out even more but there is also a progressive (laughs) politics to it because it's also very campy and i think it's very campy and very queer friendly too like the sort of flamboyance of all of it right like the um i think it is very rooted in in a sort of um in, in a camp that's that's very sort of gender based. Like there's a there's a scene where where Tom Buchanan announces that they're going to have dinner, and like ten butlers instantly appear in tuxedos through ten blowing curtains, right? And it's like it's such an it's such an obvious. I mean, it's something that's straight out of like a Madonna video, yeah, right? Like it's such an obvious like sexual camp piece about like deconstructed masculinity and and the male sex object sort of uh, be, like sort of placed in a place where you maybe used to see female sex objects like it's 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 definitely there's a progressive politics to it too um so it's not totally impoverished of that in boston we have a uh a, a sort of relatively famous but small time theater company called the gold dust orphans who do uh, campy drag performances like parodies of famous movies and plays right so they'll they'll do uh Oh, did they did they like Who's Afraid of the Virgin Mary? It was one which I'm sure was dreadfully irreverent, you know. Which was one that I saw. I saw Cleopatra the musical. No, did I see Cleopatra the musical? No, I'm looking back at their list of stuff. You can't even remember uh, which one. I mean, they, you know, yeah, they, they're, they all, they're all they're the, all. There's only one play, right? They, yeah, know, yeah. yeah. Has I mean, a but it's like, name every time. But I mean, that's the idea. I mean, it's, they're not bad. They're very good at what they do. But it's the same sort of thing. It's political theater. Like it is a political act to stand on stage. And it's political theater. That means something entirely different. But it is a political act to stand on stage and demand that you be recognized for doing this thing, right? And even if that thing is like a a scene where you're drinking and and bumping and grinding or all jumping in a swimming pool, like there is a political legitimacy to demanding that that be looked at. Um, that That is, I think trivialized by people who are very hung up on other sorts of political narratives because that's what their energy is devoted to now, right? But it's like, it's not like the things that are frivolous are apolitical, right? Like, um, 
it's not like things that are shallow or apolitical. There's an aggressive politics to Moulin Rouge, I'm sure, that we could go back and deconstruct if I cared even a little bit, <laughs> which I don't. Um, but I feel like Baz Luhrmann – I mean we're not going to be able to re- – I'd have to watch the movie like two or three more times and to really just parse it out. Because Baz Luhrmann also has the advantage here of not having had to figure out which scenes are the good ones because he had a million high school students to help him figure that out. <laughs> or more like 100,000 high school teachers. Like we all know which scenes in The Great Gatsby are the ones – I mean you don't because you didn't read it. But if we all know which I scenes feel like I Gatsby. feel like I do already though. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm ready to go to a Gatsby cocktail party and, you know, talk knowledgeably about The Great Gatsby without ever having read it, which is well, one of the goals of overthinking. I will tell you, the only academic tradition involving F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald prouder than writing the race or the eyeglasses, ashes, term paper about The Great Gatsby is writing the term paper about The Great Gatsby having not read it, which is also done, I'm sure, by thousands of people every year. Um, well, we try to do that. I mean, we try to keep that tradition alive you know by uh by podcasting about movies that we haven't seen though in fact you have seen this one this week i did i did and i loved it i thought it was great and i felt like the way it's attitude towards history you know this attitude of 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 showing you the vivid image of history uh divorced from the illusion that it is a view into the past you know that it is a remembrance Right, and as a remembrance, it, it is going to have these illusions that are associated with it, and thus, like, let's acknowledge them, you know, and let's let's not get so hung up on the somberness of our stewardship of history, which I still think is a legitimate thing. I think it's important to be good stewards of things that we care about, because otherwise, you know, literary theory robs us of everything else. Sure. Not that it, not that not learning literary theory is a good solution to that problem because ignorance isn't bliss; it's just ignorance. But um, but you know, it's like if you want to be a good steward of the things that you care about, then yes, treat them with a certain amount of of decorum. But The Great Gatsby is not a book that is well served by the solemnity with which it is so often approached, right? And there's certain books that are, the the Iliad is another big one. Right. Like I, I compare The Great Gatsby to the movie Troy, although The Great Gatsby movie is better than the movie Troy. <laughs> I like the movie Troy, even though it is not really a very particularly rigorous uh, interpretation of the Iliad, because it is like a theater of the Iliad. Right? It is like, we like the Iliad. The Iliad is exciting and awesome. There are scenes in the Iliad that I want to show to people in a movie. And I'm going to make a movie that has giant Ajax, right? And that has, like, Hector running really fast with his glinting helm. And it shows Achilles, like, standing on top of a hill talking to the Myrmidons, right? Like, I want to show these scenes from this story because they're awesome. And I think the context of approaching these works with, you have to read this in two days and then you have to stay up all night miserable writing about it, you know, like, like it's, it's, does it a disservice yeah um because that's not the point that's not why people liked it that's not why people want to keep reading it you know like at least for the first couple years that it's in existence sure. or a couple thousand yeah well uh if you would like to uh write about uh the great gatsby having read it or not you can write us a letter at podcast at overthinking com, or you can call or text uh, you can write a very short term paper in you know 140 characters or something if you text two oh three two eight five six four zero one. that's our phone number two oh three two eight five six four zero one. or you can verge into the thousand to three thousand word uh, comments you know that that uh, often happen on 
uh, the show notes for our episodes. No, I, I say that not to intimidate you. Um, I say that because our comments are awesome and you're welcome to uh, come join the conversation. So we um, uh, will uh, be back next week with Star Trek uh, Into Darkness. Uh, Star Trek into darkness or Star Trek into darkness. I don't, I don't know. I feel like there are a bunch of ways that we could like emphasize that, uh, that word, right? That yeah, title. we could. Yeah. We could also say it in different languages. <laughs> um, like how is it? I'm going to say Star. I'm Googling Star Trek into darkness in Spanish. In, in Klingon. <laughs> In Klingon, <laughs> yeah, uh, fun, fun, fun. You can come see the uh, Eurovision 2013 live viewing party if you are in New York City in the East Village on uh, Saturday, May 18th, 2013. Uh, just before 3 p.m., you can gather and at the uh, 11th Street Bar, which is 510 East 11th Street, and uh, yeah, and you can uh, also see the Eurovision coverage on our YouTube channel if you just uh, follow any of the links from the website or uh, search for Overthinking It on YouTube. So uh, until next week when we're back with Star Trek, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve. You don't have to put on the green light. <laughs> Gatsby. You don't have to sell your body to the. Oh, I love it.